0: Loving God, we pray that your love would grow in our hearts, make us abundant in the fruit of peace and justice. Amen. By now, friends, some of you have heard me talk about my upbringing in a Bible-thumping fundamentalist church in the South. In that church, and in a lot of American Christianity, the Bible gets thumped to define who's in and who's out, who God loves and who God rejects, who's a sinner and who is saved. In this version of Christianity, the Bible is used mostly as a tool for exclusion rather than for inclusion. And it's true, you can read the Bible this way. There's plenty of fodder in the scriptures to support patriarchy and the denigration of women, or how abominable gay and lesbian people are, or the rights of masters over their slaves. The Bible says all of those exclusionary things. But the Bible also says some remarkable and surprising things in the direction of inclusion. I think it's a testament to the fact that the human race hasn't progressed very far since ancient times, that some of these inclusive claims still sound subversive to us today. For example, the claim that all people are made in God's image. Think about that. Or the claim that in Christ, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave, or free, because all human identities are washed away in the water of baptism, leaving behind only one identity that matters, child of God. So says Paul in the letter to the Galatians, anyway. Ever since Richard Hooker published the first work of Anglican theology in the late 16th century, Anglicans have held that our faith rests on a three-legged stool made up of scripture, tradition, and reason. And that's different from the fundamentalists who like to insist that we've got to rely on scripture alone. But the problem is, scripture can never stand alone. Every reading of the Bible is in fact an interpretation. We need tradition and reason to help us make sense of it. What does the Bible say is not a useful question for settling a debate. If you read it carefully, you will find that the Bible says a lot of things and that they don't always agree with one another. This is hardly surprising, given that the Bible is made up of multiple texts that were written, compiled, and edited over hundreds of years by many different hands from many different cultural contexts. The Bible rarely speaks with one voice on any given issue. In fact, quite often, the Bible presents us with choices that we have to make. So the real question, I think, is how do we go about making those choices The lesson from Acts this morning provides a good case in point. Acts, as you know, presents a narrative history of what the first apostles did just after Jesus' death and resurrection, how they tried to follow what Jesus asked them to do about taking his message out to all of the corners of the earth. Now, the first section of Acts uh, concerns what happened in Jerusalem right after Easter In this part, the apostles focus mainly on convincing their fellow Jews that Jesus really was the long-awaited Messiah after all. Now, the lesson that we heard today is from later. It's from the middle part of Acts, and it's about one of the first efforts to preach the good news outside of that Jewish community, to share the gospel with Gentiles. The rest of the book of Acts and In fact, the rest of the New Testament has a lot to do with the controversies that came up trying to hold the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians together. Just how far did Jesus mean for his message to go? Are all Christians supposed to follow the Jewish dietary laws? Must Gentile converts to the way of Jesus be circumcised as adults? These questions, and others like them, were a very big deal to the earliest Christians. In today's lesson, one of the apostles, Philip, is directed by God to follow the wilderness road south that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Along the way, he meets a high-ranking Ethiopian eunuch. Now, we don't have many eunuchs around these days, but they were common in the ancient world. In fact, eunuchs were considered particularly good at certain jobs, like minding the treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia or watching over the harem of the King of Egypt. In both cases, it was thought that a eunuch wouldn't be very interested in taking what wasn't his, in the case of the treasury, because he did not have his own family to support. Rulers wanted eunuchs for these roles, and they would often accept the sons of poor families into the royal household and then make them into eunuchs at an early age. Still, even though these eunuchs held high-ranking positions, they were considered a little strange, something less than fully human. Something wasn't right with them, even if being a eunuch was not their fault or their choice. And this was particularly true within Jewish culture. Jews did not use eunuchs in this way themselves, and they thought that eunuchs did not have a place among God's people. This belief that eunuchs were outside of God's concern had good scripture to back it up right there in the Torah. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is written that eunuchs, actually the way that eunuchs are described in Deuteronomy is pretty graphic, but I'll spare you. The bottom line was that eunuchs were not permitted to join the assembly of God's people when they met for worship or for business. Now, it's likely that the eunuch Philip encountered on the road to Gaza was in fact born a Jew, because the writer tells us that the eunuch had come up to Jerusalem to worship. But, of course, he would not have been allowed to enter the temple, given what we just read in the book of Deuteronomy. Even so, God directs Philip to go up to this social outcast and see what's going on, see what he's up to. Philip finds the eunuch reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is This isn't pointed out in Acts, but it's no surprise that this Jewish eunuch might seek spiritual solace from the book of Isaiah after he had been turned away from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem. Here's what Isaiah has to say on the topic of eunuchs. Do not let the eunuchs say, I am just a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So, you see, it isn't so simple to hold to what the Bible says, because Deuteronomy says one thing, that eunuchs should be cut off from the people of God, but Isaiah says another, that God himself will give the eunuchs an everlasting name, that they will never be cut off. The real question becomes how do we choose between these two contradictory parts of the Bible? Who's right, Deuteronomy or Isaiah? In this case, God himself has directed Philip to go up and witness to the eunuch, and Philip doesn't seem to have any problem following God's direction. In fact, when the eunuch asks Philip, and consider the anguish that there must have been behind this question, coming from a man who had just been turned away from worshiping God at the temple in Jerusalem, the eunuch asks Philip, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And the answer is nothing. And Philip baptizes this eunuch, opening wide the way to God for this man who up till now had thought that he was shut out from God's care and concern. Friends, how are we to deal with the eunuchs, the strangers, and the outcasts that we encounter in our lives? the people who make us uncomfortable because they're different, people that we can't understand. What are we to say to these others, these people that some would try to shut out of God's love? Now the thing is, the people who want to exclude, to shut them out, they can quote scripture too. Just like the authorities in Jerusalem who prevented the eunuch from worshiping at the temple, these modern-day Pharisees have the chapter and verse memorized when it comes to shutting people out of God's love. As followers of Jesus, we need some criteria to help us decide which verse it is that we're going to go with, a framework that grows from our overall understanding and experience of God. This is what Hooker called tradition, and reason. Now, to me, it's clear that certain things come up with more regularity than others in the Bible. Justice, for example. Caring for the poor and the oppressed. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Loving God by loving your neighbor. I think Jesus gives us a criteria in today's gospel reading that can be useful here. He tells us to go and do what bears fruit. In other words, to take the action that leads to growth, growth of love, growth of understanding. Take the action that leads to more, more peace, more justice, more of Jesus' disciples in the world. Jesus calls us to love even when it's hard, knowing that when we act with love, our love will grow until it surrounds all of those people that we thought had been outside of the circle of God's love. It turns out no one is outside the circle of God's love. Go and bear the fruit of justice, of peace, of love. Amen.